Anyway, good morning. Good to be here. Um, clock is ticking. See if we can stick to 30 minutes today. Um, as always, joy to be here, worshipping with you guys and hearing about what God's doing in your life. That's always good. Um, yes, some of the stuff that was shared really struck me because it sort of started way back here with where we're talking about today. Uh, well, obviously before that with the fall, but then the first outworkings of that being, being kicked out of the garden and then brother against brother and all that. None of it has stopped. It's only gotten worse and it's going to keep getting worse until the true king of kings comes again. So I um, just want to do a little exercise. It might not work because heaps of people are gone. Um, but if you're the oldest person in your family, if you're the oldest sibling of your siblings, can you please stand up? If you're the oldest, cool. Excellent. I'm not, but um, yeah, cool. That's fine. You can sit down now, but I just want to get an idea of how many. Now imagine for me, those of you that stood up, what would it take for you to kill one of your younger siblings? How far would they have to push you? How much would it take? You know, Tim not talking or James being a little idiot or <laughs> how much would it take for Scotty, I don't know, or Jeff? I don't know any of your siblings. Oh, yeah, I do know um, your sister. How much would it take to... <laughs> so what we are going to read today is about a brother that kills a brother, an older brother that kills his little brother. So that's someone that he's probably seen, born, grown up with, been best mates with. Yeah. So how do you get to that point? It's pretty crazy. If you can imagine what it would take, like I have a lot of siblings, so I could easily just get rid of one of them. There's plenty more. But um, <laughs> can you comprehend killing, especially if they've only got one? Like Ben, can you comprehend killing James or Tim? Tim, can you comprehend killing Scotty or Jeff or Megan? Adrian, can you comprehend killing? Um, Sarge, can you comprehend killing one of your sisters? Maybe. I can certainly comprehend killing one of my brothers. But anyway, uh, we won't go there. I want to pray, and then we'll get into the word. Um, but let the shock and horror of that possibility, that thought, what would it take to kill one of my siblings, just sort of settle on you as we go into the passage. All right, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you so much for allowing us to be here still freely in our country, worshipping you, even though things are changing and our freedoms are being called into question. Uh, we are still able to meet uh, around your word and pray and share and be Christian. So thank you for that. We pray that you would continue to sustain us to fight for that and to continue to be salt to preserve the good things in our society. I pray, Lord, today that, um, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon our meeting here, that you would empower me to speak your words and forbid me to say anything that's not coming from you. And I pray also that you would open the hearts and minds of your people and guide your words straight into their hearts. Amen. Okay, let's read the passage. If you're going to follow me, we're going to be mostly in Genesis 4 today, which is where the whole Cain and Abel story happens. But you might also want to put your finger in Hebrews because we're going to head there to look at chapter 11 and 12. Uh, if you've got a digital Bible, well, just search it when we get to it. So Genesis chapter 4 is where we're starting out. Verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. 
the Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad and Erad was the father of Mahujael and Mahujael was the father of Methuselah and Methuselah was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other one named Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments, including Tim Burstow. I'm sorry, that's not there. And pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. Now Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam, again, made love to his wife, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh, and at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Sorry, dry throat. Okay, so that's our passage for today. Let me shift gears for a second and give you a little story about when my eldest child, Abigail, was born. Uh, when we found out Sarah was pregnant for the first time, there was all the usual, oh my goodness, we're pregnant, what new parents have, like all the hopes and dreams and joy, and also all the, oh dear, we made a baby. We're going to be responsible for a human being for the next, forever. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. But when she actually was born, apart from all the mess and pain and all that, which thankfully I didn't have to have much to do with, um, we were thinking things like, oh, this is... This is amazing. How are we going to get through it all? And then she just popped out and we forgot everything. All the fear, all the anxiety. Like, I remember when the nurses dumped her on Sarah's fa on chest for the first time and Sarah's face just changed from this mask of pain and sweat into, this, oh my goodness, I've got a little baby. And Abby was really ugly. She was really purple and wrinkly. And, um, but yeah, we were just both like, wow, like just nothing but love. And then out of that love grew hopes, dreams, expectations. Who was she going to be? What would she do? Would she change the world? Would she just be average? Um, how on earth can we give her the best start we can? Um, we had plenty of opportunities to prepare. People have been having babies for 
as long as humans have been around. So there are plenty of people we could talk to beforehand. There were books we could read. There were podcasts. We had examples of other parents in our church, in our families. Plenty of time to prepare. Eve didn't have any of that. She was the very first mother, the very first pregnancy. And Cain, the first baby born on earth, would have been the very first time all that expectation, hopes, dreams, joy was laid out for the first parents. He literally represented the future of humanity, the firstborn. And he would have been pretty close to perfect, never mind ugly, wrinkled, red-headed DNA messed up for thousands of years. Adam and Eve were made perfect. So their children, not much gone wrong yet. So the Genesis story starts off pretty well. Um, Adam and Eve are made by God. They're put in a garden. Then it goes horribly wrong. They get kicked out, but they still have each other. They love each other. They've got a good marriage. They're still talking to God, as we find out in this. And then somewhere along the line, they get pregnant and they have a son. That little baby is born with so much potential, so much expectation. What will he do? But deep inside him, as in every single fully human soul ever born on this earth, there's a stain. There's a darkness, a little black streak called sin. Thanks to his parents and their mistake, he was cursed right from the start. So was Abel. So are you. So am I. We all are. That's the consequence of the curse of sin. So soon, Cain's growing up a bit and a brother comes along. Cain and Abel, Atticus and Torin, Abby and Naomi, whatever. Substitute your kids if you've got them. Or your brother or sister if you have them. Um, they're growing up together. Best mates. Have a bit of a biff now and then. Scrape knees, playing together, pinching toys, pooping in each other's beds, whatever. Um, okay, maybe that's just our kids. <laughs> so Cain gets to the point where he, he needs to learn the trade. So does Abel. Now, interestingly, Cain decides to go after with gardening, which is, if you recall, Adam's first job. He was put in the garden to tend the ground. Abel decides he's going to look after animals. But that's also one of Adam's jobs, remember? He named all the animals. They all came to him. So in a sense, they're both taking on the family business, just different branches of it. Um, and Dad would have been there all along telling them all about it. But how many times must Adam have looked at the ground and gone, I miss the garden? How many times would he have told his son stories about how the fruit just grew and you could pick it? And yeah, you could dig around and pl transplant a few things if you wanted to just to make it look better. But, you know, most of the time the creation served you. The garden was awesome. And he would have missed it as they struggled on and on as the fellas got older and Abel had to start actually putting full-time hours into looking after the animals because animals were going wild and killing each other and eating them. Suddenly, you couldn't just do both jobs at once because the garden was easy like Adam had. It was a full-time job for Cain to till the fields as a full-time job for Abel to look after the animals. We're not told how long this goes on, but we can probably assume by the time our narrative happens here that they were both grown men. Um, they were alone doing their jobs, so they probably didn't need supervision. They knew what they were doing. They owned stuff because they brought offerings of their own things. Cain brought his veggies and Abel brought his fat from a young lamb and offered it to God. So they didn't have to go and ask Dad for something to sacrifice. Okay? They, they were pretty much adults set themselves up. We don't know how old. They could have been 30. They could have been 200. They could have been 18. But some other things that we can see from the passage, both of them have a relationship with God. No one told them you have to make these offerings. They both do it voluntarily. Cain brings his veggies and Abel brings his fat. Um, it's just a done thing. They're thankful to God for what he's given, so they bring him an offering. Probably been taught by dad, probably even talked to God themselves because Cain talks to God pretty much face-to-face -face later in the passage. 
So we know we can establish that both of them have a relationship with God as well. So this is where it starts to get interesting. Um, both men have a relationship with God and both bring an offering for their labours. This is in verses 3 and 4, if you look at them. Cain brings some of the veggies, Abel butchers the lamb, brings some of the fatty portions, and God looks favourably on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's, which makes Cain really angry. Now, if you know someone who's all-powerful and wise and teaches you stuff, and you meet with him and learn all kinds of awesome stuff, and you and your brother both go to offer a sacrifice because you love him and you think it's cool, and he just goes, mm, don't like that. Oh, this one's great. How would you respond? Would you get angry? Would you feel a little bit ticked off? I worked just as hard as he did running around after sheep in the fields. I had to dig and then plant it and then watch it grow and keep the birds away and then cut it all up and bring it here. You might say that Cain's a little justified in his anger if you just take it at a cursory reading, okay? Because God seems to be playing favourites a little bit. I like this one, and eh, not so much that one. That's what a cursory reading will get you. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think God just plays favourites? No. Okay, good. Yes, it was a loaded question. Um, but we must ask why. Why did God favour one offering over the other? Thoughts, ideas. I'm not going to call out people who get it massively wrong. But what do you think? Why would God favour Abel's offering over Cain's? Ideas. It was what? He was cheap. <laughs> what do you mean by that, Tim? He didn't bring the best. Interesting, interesting. Had to do with blood, maybe? What, because the sacrifice, atonement? Yeah, yeah, maybe, but remember, yeah, maybe, but remember the Mosaic law hasn't been given yet. The sacrifice stuff hasn't been set up yet. This is right after Eden. Yeah, attitude of the heart is what's important when you make an offering to God. If you don't bring the best of what you have, God is kind of like, well, cool, is that what you think of me? Yep, I like your brothers better, because he brought the best. But there's more to it than that as well. Um, to find out some more about why, we have to head into the New Testament and find out what else is written about these two guys. So, come down to Hebrews chapter 11. Remember I said we we're going to be in Hebrews for a bit? Hebrews chapter 11, verses 3 and 5. As you probably heard before, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's by faith so-and-so did this, by faith so-and-so did that, blah, 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 blah. All these people had faith, so be like them. But these ones are about Abel. So chapter 11, verses 3 and 5 in Hebrews. By faith, we understand that the universe, universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. Interesting. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Well, that's true enough. We're here talking about Cain and Abel today, so he still speaks even though he's dead. But what do you think it means that by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did? Tim's already alluded to it. Abel brought the best of what he had. Cain, probably not. Um, but what do you mean? What do you think it means? By faith, Abel brought God a better offering. Was it the type? Was it the hard attitude? Thoughts? Faith that God would accept it? Yeah, maybe. 
What makes one offering better than another? Is it the offering itself? Is it what it consists of? Is it the attitude behind it? Is it the relationship between the offerer and the offered too? Yeah, absolutely right. You're, you're all on the money. But I really like what Adrian's drawing out there. Like, you can do something out of religion, out of ritual. You can rock up to church on a Sunday because that's what you do as a Christian. You can give to overseas missions or poor people because that's what Christians do. I won't go on, but you can fill in the blanks for yourselves. It's easy to do the things that are required. And Cain was very much doing that. Well, God desires offerings, so I'll bring him an offering. It was out of duty. It was expected because that's what the other guy did. But Abel did it because he loved God. He had a relationship with God. It wasn't just a ritual. He wasn't doing it out of duty. He was doing it out of love. So we see that if you look further into the New Testament. 1 John um, chapter 3, verses 11 uh, to 13. So don't worry about turning over if you don't want to, but 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. For this message you've heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So this is talking more about the murder than the offering, but the same deal. His own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. The heart attitude was that Cain wanted to keep up appearances, do what was expected, and just get on with life. Probably wasn't too interested in following God. Abel, however, loved God um, and gave his offering the best that he had out of love. So God saw it as better and he favoured it. So then that casts a different light on Cain's anger in response. Why is he angry now that we know his true motivation for the offering? He got found out. <laughs> God called him on it in front of his brother. Like, yeah, I don't really consider your offering worthwhile. And he gets angry because now his brother knows. Now, he might tell mum and dad. Everyone knows that his relationship with God isn't that great. He's just doing what's expected. So we finally find out the reason why God favoured Abel's offering. Abel brought his offering by faith out of a righteous heart that wanted to follow God and please him. He brought the best that he had. And Cain brought his out of duty to keep up appearances, even though his heart was already turning evil and away from God. So God wasn't playing favourites. He was honouring the heart attitude. That's what he does. He looks on the heart not what's done, but what the intention is behind it. Obviously, he watches what's done as well, but he's most concerned with the heart attitude. Now, God was merciful. Um, Cain's anger at being found out or not having his offering accepted um, starts to grow, and he gets um, downcast. It, it was depressing him. It was the point where he was stewing on it. He was brooding over it. He was thinking what he could do about it. His pride was growing into jealousy and anger. But God is merciful with him. Look at verse 6 back in Genesis. Genesis verse 6 and 7. God Almighty says, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. God gives him a chance to correct his ways. Like, this was done in love. I didn't reject you because I felt like it or because I was playing favorites. 
I wanted you to understand that you're turning away from me, so you can do something about it. This is an extension of mercy. Why is your face downcast? Just do what is right and you'll be accepted. It's a chance to repent. Cain would have lost absolutely nothing by repenting. He wouldn't lose face with his brother. He'd have a better relationship with God and he would lose nothing by it. But he doesn't. He chooses a different course. Immediately after, we're told, it's, it's not necessarily immediately after in time, but immediately after getting his warning from God, the narrative goes on to say, now Cain said to his brother Abel, Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they're in the field, Cain has attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Two brothers, best mates, growing up, learning about God, learning the family trade from dad, established now as equals, earning their own keep, have a relationship with God. One guy's sort of not doing it right. God calls him on it. He gets angry and decides the solution is to go kill his little brother. That's a fair jump. It's a fair jump. Um, Genesis 4.8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they're in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Is one of the saddest verses in the Bible for me. Because not only is it a record of the first murder, it's the record of the first human death. Like maybe there were miscarriages or others that had died before that that we're not told about, but this is the first one that's recorded. It shows that the curse had truly taken hold in the heart of humanity. A brother was willing to kill his little brother, his best mate in a sense, who he'd grown up with, to save face. Don't tell mum and dad I'm not really following God. That's what it was about. I'm angry with you because God loves you and he's telling me to repent. It's because he loves you too, dude, but anyway. Um, it's really sad because it shows that the curse has truly taken root. And even in the face of a direct warning by the Creator God, God says to him, just do what's right and you'll be accepted. He doesn't. He turns around and goes the other way. This was murder. Premeditated, planned and carried out. He had means, motive and opportunity. And he carried it out. So we're not told what he did with the body. Maybe he just left him there hoping that people would think a wild animal did it. Maybe he hid him and hoped no, no one would notice. Whatever he did, as he left the scene, the full weight of what he'd done must have started to sink in. And the gravity, the weight of it must have come crashing down on him. His little brother is dead. Those of you who stood up before because you're the elder sibling, those of you who have any younger sibling, if you heard that your little brother or sister had died, probably not too great news. If you had killed them, that's much worse. How are you going to hide it? What if people find out the guilt and the shame that he must have been bearing with? Um, I've done plenty of stupid things when I'm angry. <laughs> I've punched walls. I've broke a windscreen once. I've done lots of dumb things when I was angry and upset. And I've instantly regretted every one of them. Pretty much all of them have been able to be repaired, but they've been costly. Um, the guilt and the shame in that moment after you do it. Oh, I'm such an idiot. What did I do that for? Um, you, you just sort of get a bit off balance and you start to go paranoid. Oh, what if somebody finds out? Especially if it affects other people. The shame and the guilt start to crash in on you. You can't focus on anything. You try to convince yourself it's not that bad. Everybody else has done it. It was justified. I had good reasons for it. But ultimately, it's still done and it can't be undone and there's going to be a cost or a consequence. Have you ever been there? I've been there way too many times and I still don't learn. Um, Cain did this for, well, the second time. Adam and Eve in the garden were probably the dumbest ones that started it. Um, 
but this is Cain doing it really badly, like, oh crap, like, looking down at his dead brother's body. Oh man, like, what do I do? How do I hide it? What do I tell people? And then he starts, by the time God meets him and confronts him, verses 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Not my problem. He's a grown man. He can look after himself. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're under a curse. So by the time God confronts him, he's already kind of decided, okay, my approach is going to be, I don't know anything about it. No, not my problem. He just went off to look after his sheep, probably got eaten by a lion. <laughs> you know, he'd already decided how he was going to handle it. This was a murder. It was premeditated. It wasn't something done in the instant of anger. The anger grew into bitterness and hatred and jealousy that eventually ended in a death. So God says, now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which open its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. What has God just done to him there? What did Cain do for a job? He took away his livelihood. He said, you grow stuff. You've just fed the ground with your brother's blood. It's going to give you nothing but weeds now. Where does that leave Cain? He doesn't have, well, this is back at the start of humanity. They didn't have big cities and technology and stuff yet. Pretty much the two professions that you could get food were growing stuff from the ground and what Abel did. So God has cursed him to now have to get his food from following his brother's profession. He now has to tend animals and he has to be reminded of his brother every single day he does it. Pretty bad punishment. What he's good at has been taken away. And he now has to live every day with a reminder that if he wants to, and oh, by the way, how do you get food from animals? You have to kill them. Every time he kills an animal for food, he's reminded of what he did. That's why he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. God does a bunch of things. He says, you're cursed, you'll be a restless wanderer, and the land will no longer give its crops to you. Now look at Cain's response. My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Is that what God said? No, that's actually not what God said would happen to him. He's added two parts in there. What are they? People going to come kill me. That's one. Yep. And I'll be hidden from God's presence. God never said that to him. He never said, you're cast out from my presence. He takes that on himself. He thinks he's blocked himself off from God. Now, the last person that twisted around something God said was the old snakey snakey. So you can see who Cain's really following and where his heart's going. And God's like, oh, here we go again. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this is a pretty important conversation for us as a human race because in it, God does a bunch of things. Um, I think Ben or Adrian, one of them, talked recently about how often in the Bible there's multiple applications of the same word. So one to the people it's happening to or being said to right then and there, and then one for all time. Um, and sometimes one for specific groups of people as well. But anyway, um, 
here, God does a bunch of things. Verse 10, he shows that he's all-knowing. He already knew what Cain had done, even though Cain tried to deny it. He said, listen, he expected him to hear something. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. I know what you've done. So God establishes that he's all-knowing. Verses 10 and 15, God establishes himself as the Lord of life and death. He sets up, I'm in charge of that. What you've done, what have you done? It's a terrible crime against God himself because he's the giver of life and he's the only legitimate taker of life. To set yourself up um, as someone who can give and take life as you please is an insufferable act of pride to God because it's saying, I'm as good as you are. I can just snuff someone out whenever I like. That's not our prerogative. Um, So God establishes himself as the Lord of life and death and the only one with the right to take it. Why do you think he punishes Cain so harshly? Because no human being has a right to kill another. And God sets that up right here. Verses 11 and 12. God reveals his just nature, forcing consequences on Cain. No more easy gardening for you, just weeds. He literally takes his livelihood away, forces him to basically do what his brother did and always have to kill for his food. And yet God also reveals his merciful nature in verse 15. Cain fears being killed, but God marks him with his own protection. That's an act of mercy. That's giving him another chance to repent, to change his ways. Yeah, he probably had just cause to fear. Remember, the only people on the earth at this time are Adam's family. Anyone else he would run into, he killed their brother. They've got just cause to want to off him, sort him out. What about Adam and Eve? How would they have felt when the news came? Cain killed Abel. To put it in modern context, for me, Abby killed Naomi. Atticus killed Torin. Like, you know, what would their parents have felt like? Incredible grief, incredible suffering, incredible pain. They've lost not one son, but two. Cain's lost to them now as well, because he heads off into the unknown and shuts himself off from God. But God is actually being merciful to him by marking him with his protection, showing him you're still loved, you still have an opportunity to repent. And then verse 16 is another incredibly sad verse. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. After this, there's no record of Cain ever talking to God again. He may have. Um, There's no record of him ever repenting. In fact, his family becomes one of the most evil families in the early Bible. Um, And he's used as an example of evil people later on. Um, That's what the whole stuff about his family right down to Lamech is about. Um, Cain heads off to Nod, uh, gets a wife builds a city, begins a dynasty of a fairly ungodly family. By the time Lamech is born, one of his descendants four or five times removed, I can't remember how many, um, Lamech thinks it's okay to go kill a bloke that injured his pride or wounded him, a young fella. And he says to his wives, well, if Cain is avenged seven times, I'll be avenged 77. What he's doing there is actually appropriating God's dealings with Cain for himself. He's saying, oh, well, if Cain's killed someone and got away with it and God looked after him, I'm fine. Nobody will come after me. That's a pretty evil thing to do. So Cain's legacy became one of killing others and justifying it, living apart from God. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. An incredibly sad verse, the first time someone has left God. Because after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they still had a relationship with God. Okay, part three, a new hope to borrow a Star Wars thing. Um, So we hear a lot about Cain and Abel in this narrative, but people that are remarkably silent until right at the end are the parents. They would have, we don't know when they found out, but they know by the time Seth is born because 
um, when they name him, um, Eve actually says, um, God has given me a son to replace Abel, whom Cain killed. So what did they do when they found out? Imagine their grief, their sorrow, their guilt and shame, knowing they started all this back in the garden when they screwed it all up. This was always going to happen because of what they did. They had the kids, they watched them grow up, they loved on them, they thought about all their potential, watched them become men that could look after themselves and their own families, and then saw one kill the other, losing both in the process. And they're sitting there thinking, why did we ever listen to that bloody snake? So yeah, it would have been a hard time for Adam and Eve. Um, Seth's name is interesting. It literally means anointed compensation. So Cain's name means spear. It's meant to imply strength. Um, the firstborn son, the spear, the future. Abel's name, uh, I forget. I wrote it down the bottom. It means breath, breathing spirit, son, basically. So they had a spear and they had a son and then they had compensation because the spear killed the son. So it's interesting. Names in the Bible mean stuff, which is cool. Um, the family lines become distinct after this. Seth's line goes on to continue to have a relationship with God. They have um, a lot of really godly people like Enoch and Noah and eventually Abraham and David and right down to Jesus. Cain's family become more and more evil. I'm out of time. It's half an hour. I was nearly done. I have some final thoughts. And they're around the question that I asked on Facebook. Where is God in all of this? What was God doing? Why didn't he stop the murder? He warned him. He went up to Cain and said, sin crouches at your door. You must rule over it. Don't do it. And Cain went and did it anyway. So if God could warn him, he could stop him. This is a question I get asked more often than any other by uni students that are trying to understand the world and what role God has in it. If there's a good and powerful God, why doesn't he do something about all the crap? And why especially does he let bad stuff happen to good people? And this is the first instance of it. If God's good and powerful, why doesn't he stop the bad things happening to his favourite, to Abel, the good guy? Um, the only way I make sense of it is a, something that I call divine consistency. And I was talking about this with Adrian and Ben when we were talking about starting the mega series. Um, Adrian gave us a whole bunch of guiding principles to look at throughout the Bible. Um, and I talked about how I've always found the nature of God to be really consistent right through. Old Testament, New Testament. Um, my father-in-law, Sarah's dad, he read the Bible. And he had a real big issue with the fact that God in the Old Testament is this angry, judging, sending people off to kill whole nations, including children kind of guy. And then Jesus in the New Testament is not like that at all. So he's like, well, the different gods, it doesn't make sense. There's no consistency. I'm out. Um, I think that's a pretty basic and wrong understanding of it. So a couple of verses. I believe that God is eternal, unchanging, utterly incapable of evil. I believe he never changes and he is consistently righteous, merciful, loving, just and good all at the same time. So I said that pretty fast. I have some verses to back it up. Numbers 23.19, God never changes. So the verse actually says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? I've received a command to bless, he has blessed, and I cannot change it. That was a human speaking of God. God is perfect, Deuteronomy 32.4. He is the rock, his works are perfect, all his ways are just, a faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. 
Psalm 33, the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And then Ephesians 2.10, does anyone know that one? Okay, I thought some of you might. That's okay. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece, the church. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And James 1.17, whatever is good and perfect comes to us from God above. He who created all of heaven's lights, unlike them, he never changes. He never casts shifting shadows. So I believe God is consistent throughout. Some of that stuff is set up here. When God set up the creation, he gave the humans a choice to eat or not eat that forbidden fruit. That continued to be his pattern. He made us in his image. That means we have choices that have consequences. And he is not going to step in and change the consequences of our choices. He didn't in the Garden of Eden, and he didn't here. He warned Cain, that's perfectly within his right, but Cain chose to kill Abel anyway, and God didn't stop him. And stuff happens bad today because people choose to do bad crap, and God doesn't stop them. We've all done things here. I certainly have that I regret, and God didn't stop me. Because... The image of God means that we are able to make choices that have consequences. God can still use those consequences for good. He certainly did with um, the Cain and Abel murder. Another son comes and Abel still speaks today. He's held up as a prophet, as righteous, and Cain is an example of what not to do. Um, God is ultimately just. He's consistent. In the garden, he warned them, don't eat from this or you'll die. They ate. Everybody starts to die. With starts with Abel. Um, here he warned Cain, "You must rule over this, your sin." Cain went and sinned anyway. God was just; He had to punish him. He still loved him and gave him a merciful mark that wouldn't let anyone else kill him to give him another opportunity to repent. But he was just. God's consistently merciful. He could have started again after Adam and Eve screwed it all up. Okay, the experiment, free choice, didn't work. Delete, reset. New bunch that don't have a choice. He didn't do it. He's consistent. He doesn't change. He's consistently merciful. Instead, he came up with a plan to save humanity anyway, his son. One last reference to Abel in the Bible. We see his legacy. This is in Hebrews chapter 12, 22 to 28. The legacy of Abel the murdered. The writer of Hebrews says to the entire body of Christ, you have come to Mount Zion. This is Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things will be removed, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Abel's blood cried to God from the ground. It cried for justice. It demanded judgment. I am innocent. 
I've been slain. God answered, he punishes Cain. Jesus' blood screamed from the earth, demanding recognition of a debt forever paid. Far better word than Abel's blood. Jesus' blood sealed victory over death and spoke the words of redemption, hope, and everlasting life. A better word than the blood of Abel. So where does God Almighty come into all this? Well, he stands outside time. As he watched Abel fall and bleed out on the earth, he knew, he foreshadowed, this was a foreshadowing to all men, the murder of Jesus, the God-man. That was coming, and that would be the only way back to him. That would pay once and for all the penalty of all sin. Divine consistency, what I was talking about, means that divine blood can pay the ultimate price to redeem all creation from sin and death. But choices still matter. They still have consequences. God could have forced um, Adam and Eve not to eat that forbidden fruit. He could have forced Cain not to kill Abel, but he didn't. And he's not going to force you to do anything today. I'm way over time. Ten minutes. I had a few more thoughts about social justice. Shall I stop or keep going? It's only about another five minutes. What do you think? Keep going? Okay, so I've talked a lot about God and justice. Justice is one of God's characteristics. It's always consistent, never changes. But it's also balanced by his mercy. Everything about God is in perfect balance. So his divine justice flows out of his holiness. His total absence of evil means he can't even stand to look at evil. Um, his judgments on sin and evil are the natural consequence of that holiness. Evil is totally contrary to God's nature and wholly offensive to him, so his justice demands a reckoning. Humans, us, we're made in the image of God. We're the Imago Dei, which is why we are naturally offended by things that we see as pure evil. Murder, rape, abuse of children, victimization of other people, and bullying all tend to get a righteous outrage from even the most immoral or morally loose people. I have mates that have slept with three or four girlfriends, um, but then when their little sister was abused by a teacher, they just lost it. How is it any different? She wasn't consenting. Well, <laughs> there are things that happen in the world that we just see as wrong. They shouldn't happen. Why is that? It's because we're made in the image of God. Even broken, we still recognize that some things simply should not happen. The word righteous actually means what is right or how things should be. There's something inside us, that broken image of God that says this world is not right. That's why those four girls that we met in the last two weeks said, yes, I've always wanted to know what it's all about. Tell me more. But there's plenty more like the guys that BJ talked about that just want it to be a conflict. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want to make things right. They don't want to become righteous. So they come up with a feel-good alternative called social justice. Now, I know it's a loaded political term. I know that it means different things to different people, so I'm not going to get up anybody that's on about social justice. But it is a stand-in for the true justice of God. And it does a few horrible things. Um, human justice, social justice, typically refers these days to the ideas of egalitarianism, equality, human rights, redistribution of wealth, everyone having a fair go. Sounds pretty good. Um, but this leads to an economic system, a construct, which attempts to solve human problems by removing responsibility. Ultimately, that's what it's about. Well, let's get the government to redistribute wealth so there's a welfare system so everyone has a fair go. Let's give free education to people. Let's send aid overseas. Let's set up programs to help people recover from X, Y, Z, um, everything from drug addiction to pornography. 
Um, these are all good things. I'm not banging on them, I'm not knocking them, but the one thing that they completely miss is the element of personal responsibility. No program is going to change the black streak in a human heart. No amount of money given in gain is going to change the black streak. And no amount of blaming the government and saying it's their fault there's all these problems is going to make the problems go away. We have to change individually. And the only power of that is the Holy Spirit. So I'm all for helping people, but I want us to be really aware that God's justice the Christian view of justice is about the individual serving those around them wherever they can. Jesus talked about that. It's not about um, putting the government, um, telling them it's their responsibility. The church started in the Roman Empire. They didn't give a crap about the bottom end of society. Slaves, prostitutes, orphans, widows, who cares? So the Christians looked after them. And they didn't have a centralised fund. They didn't have people overseeing this much going to Asia, this much going to um, Asia Minor, this much going to Rome. They just looked after the ones around them. And that's how they turned the world upside down. That's what Jesus was talking about when he says, love your neighbour as yourself. The greatest commandment. Today's notion of social justice replaces the individual with the government. It's someone else's responsibility to look after those poor broken people. I'll give my bit, I'll help out here and there. But our ultimate responsibility is to be Christ to those around us. That is God's justice. The answer to Cain's question, am I brother's keeper, is a resounding yes. Yes, you are. You are your brother's keeper. You represent Christ, God, God Almighty. And for those around you, he put you there for them. He didn't put you there for you. He put you there for them. I'm finished. Let's move into communion. Oh, King Jesus, you have done so much for us. And... All you do is call us to follow you, to follow your example, to love you wholeheartedly and to love our neighbours ourselves. It's hard to imagine that you could stand by and watch while Cain murdered his brother. It's hard to imagine that you can be just and stand by and watch everything that goes on in the world today. But if we truly understand your character, that you want us to be free, you want us to choose you, you want us to represent you because we love you, to bring a better offering, not one that is just trying to keep up appearances. Help us to truly love you. Help us to truly serve you. Help us to reach those around us and care for them in a real way. Help us not to feel like the problem's too big because it was never too big for you. Help us not to feel like there's nothing we can do because you wanted even the smallest offering that someone gave. So as we come to communion and we remember the ultimate offering, you yourself, your own body, smashed to pieces and then hung up on a cross and bled out, a word better than the blood of Abel. Help us remember that following you is just about denying ourselves and looking after the others around us and looking to you for the strength to do that. Help us now as we remember that in communion. Help us now as we go out into the week. Help us as we meet with friends, workmates, family, whoever it is that you put us there for that's in our life that doesn't know you. Give us a word in season. Let us be surrendered to your spirit. Amen.